All right, welcome back to the Founder-Led Marketing Show. In today's episode, we have Kevin Indyk, who used to be head and VP of SEO at Atlassian, G2, and then Shopify. So pretty incredible uh, pedigree. He is currently a partner at Hypergrowth Partners and a growth advisor to some of the fastest growing B2B SaaS companies like Riverside, Software, Workstream, and more. And we talk all things SEO for early stage growth and Later stage growth too, how AI is changing SEO, what tools he's currently using, uh, is Google being disrupted by other search platforms like TikTok, Spotify, and many more things. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, if you have any feedback, message me on LinkedIn. And now, Kevin Indyk. Kevin is, in terms of, for growth, probably one of the interesting people to talk to, especially in SaaS. So you were... Head of SEO, VP SEO, kind of slightly different job titles, but similar, I guess. First for Atlassian, then G2, then Shopify. That's a pretty nice pedigree. Currently partner at Hypergrowth Partner and a growth advisor to some really cool company, Riverside, which is actually what we're using right now to record and stream this to LinkedIn Live. Uh, Workstream was in there. Uh, softer, a bunch of names that people probably have heard. So yeah, I mean, for, for SEO, for growth, uh, I think, you know, lots of stuff to talk here. Anything I forgot, any, any other short bio intro that uh, you want to, you want to say, mention here? No, it sounds great. Maybe, maybe you can add the, the growth memo newsletter, which is a passion project of mine. There we uh, go. But you, you recently made it a paid thing, right? And I saw on your recent post that you spent 25 hours of research on one of the, one of the newsletters. Yeah. Yeah. It, it takes a lot of research and that's, yeah, that's right. That's a paid product. It's in-depth, um, reports and tear parts of companies. Um, very, very excited. Um, very great launch out of the gate. And so, yeah, I invest a lot of time, but it's also super energizing to me. So maybe maybe that that's another thing to add to the bio. And I'm assuming this is not purely SEO, right? Like you're breaking down more complete. Uh, awesome. Yeah, Very that's cool. correct. I go really deep in product market, but then also things like conversion optimization, product-led growth. It's a, it's a very multidimensional look. And that's also, you know, what I did towards the end of my in-house operator career at Shopify that not just SEO teams, but also, you know, PLG teams, product teams in general, designers, engineers, writers. It's very, very broad. Awesome. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into some broader growth stuff. We'll not just purely focus on SEO, but maybe to start this out with, you know, I posted yesterday, I've seen Jason Lemkin, which I'm sure you're familiar with, say this a couple times now, which is basically for growth, write a great blog post once a week, and it always works. And I just feel like personally, that's horrible advice when you're just starting out. I feel like there are so many channels that make way more sense than blog writing, whether it's on LinkedIn or anything. So I feel like you personally you need to be, I don't know, 2 million, 3 million, 5 million in revenue before SEO makes any sense. So react to that. Let me share your thoughts. How wrong am I? Uh, but how do you think about it? Yeah, I think you're you're very correct there now it's i'm going to explain a framework in a second that that helps us think through that question to through that question um but generally the basis always has to be product market fit right like it, it there are companies who i talk to and who i reject as clients who want to start with the marketing side and then build a product on top and it never ever works it always has to come 
from out like from the product. And part of the reason is not just that you want, you know, SEO is a means to an end. Like you 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 want that traffic to convert. And you want to actually have customers. And if the product is bad, then that's not going to work out. Another part is that a lot of people don't talk about this, but product market fit brings a lot of insights that help you craft a better SEO strategy. Like what is the actual problem that you're solving that you can address in your content or on your website? What are some of the use cases, right? There's so much hidden, but, you know, packaged in product market fit that it helps you craft a much better SEO strategy. So let's talk a little bit about that framework that I that I mentioned in the beginning. From a 30,000 foot view, there are really two types of SEO companies. Ones are what I call aggregators. And that's not my term. That term came from Ben Thompson, who writes for Techery, a uh, very epic newsletter that I recommend you to sign up for. Um, and the others are integrators. And so in a, in a very simplified version, aggregators are typically marketplaces or, or large online retailers. They have either user-generated content, think about TripAdvisor hotel reviews, or they have a product inventory like eBay has products, right, that you can that you can uh, uh, buy. And so they approach SEO from a very, very different perspective than integrators. Integrators don't have user-generated content or product inventory. They have to create the content themselves, right? So that's where we talk a lot about SaaS companies, typically direct-to-consumer e-commerce companies. They have to, they typically can create blog content. And, and blog is just one format for content, by the way. We can talk about that later. Um, they can create landing pages, programmatic landing pages, lead generation tools, but everything they create has to come, you know, from the inside. They don't have that those entities that they can leverage compared to aggregators. And so that is that is super critical to understand because as an aggregator, oftentimes you want to th- start thinking about SEO from day one. It is mm-hmm. typically the largest channel. So G two, for example, that's one of the companies where I led SEO and content. Classic aggregator, they aggregate product reviews, software reviews specifically. Um, and SEO is responsible for the absolute majority of revenue in your business. So if, if Google were to close doors tomorrow for whatever reason, mm-hmm. that company would be in severe trouble. And they mm-hmm. had to think about SEO from day one. A different company, for example, Ramp. Uh, so I worked uh, for 12 months with Ramp, fastest growing fintech startup in history. And they we did fantastic SEO work there. We drove legit, impactful, significant business. But if, S- if Google closed their doors tomorrow, Ramp would be fine. They have other growth channels. It's like it's a completely different dynamic. And for that startup, I totally agree with you. You probably don't have to think about SEO before three to five million in ARR. And even then, you want to be very, very intentional and um, thoughtful about how you approach SEO. And I, I get where where Jason comes from when he said, you know, write a blog post a week. But these days, I'm not sure that model is universal anymore for every company. Right. You you mentioned product market fit. I'm curious, how do you define product market fit? And then what are the questions that you asked companies to determine whether they've reached it? Yeah. So the best approach to that that I learned is to look at a couple of different metrics and look for basically, you know, the, the green light for all of these metrics. So number one, most important metric that I look at is retention, retention rate. And you want to, it depends how long like how you want to define retention rate, right? You can say, hey, we retain people yep. for 30 days, we retain them for three years, 10 years, or like what? how you define that, that's that's individual to every company. Um, but retention rate to me is the strongest indicator of product market fit. If you can get people to stick to your product, 
that means you really have something. The other one is NPS. Um, and sorry, what's uh, what's a good retention rate? Like, what are you, what are you looking for? Yeah, so it depends on the cons- uh, on the on the type of product. Something like Facebook or or Threads from Meta, right? Instagram, consumer heavy aggregators, typically in the range of fifty to seventy percent over twelve months. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to something like uh, enterprise heavy SaaS, right? Even like a company like Ram, but I'm not saying that's their actual retention rate. But we talk yeah. about such a company, which is at the other end of the spectrum. We're much more talking about. Um, you know, retaining, I would say, almost 100% of customers over two or three years, right? You want to, especially at that growth stage, there's another dimension that we have to add to that. It depends on where we start. But let's just assume we start young, young company, a couple of years in, those are typically the the, the spans we're talking about. And then you can go as low as 25% retention rate. Uh, I know, for example, so one of the people who I really admire is Casey Winters. Uh, he ran growth at a whole bunch of different companies, and uh, when he spoke at retention at Eventbrite, retention there is much closer to maybe 20 to 30, maybe 40%, depending on the cohort, uh, simply because people don't use that product super often, right? There's there's much more variability, whereas something like a social network, you have you know a much more streamlined idea of what retention looks like because the experience is so similar for every user. What were the other metrics? So retention rate, NPS, is another one that I really like. Uh, Net promoter score, very easy to measure, very indicative. Uh, indicative and uh, again, you can measure different cohorts and different experiences. Um, there, you know, so based on how you want to uh, measure net promoter score, typically hundred a score of a hundred is a is a really good score. And so you see that all products with strong product market fit, they all typically they're all scoring around that um, hundred mm. um, uh, value. So those are the two main ones that you look for. Yep, there are other secondary ones which are you know so, which sometimes help you understand, but not always. One of them is uh, brand searches. So you and this is something that very few people do, and especially very few startups. But you want to measure how many brand impressions you get on Google. Um, the reason being that brand searches do not fall, and I know we're diving deep into SEO here, but brand searches don't follow the classic rank factors. When I look for something like um, Amazon or Amazon books or Amazon deals, I will always see Amazon on the first position of Google because Google knows that I want Amazon, right? There's no no ambiguity, no confusion around that. And so when you as a company measure the impressions you get for all brand searches over time, that that should ideally grow. There's no per- the problem with that is it's relative, right? Like right. you cannot say, oh, if you, you know, if you have a thousand brand searches a month, then you are in a really good shape. It's it's super relative, but you can measure it over time and against your competitors. And ideally, over time, you want to get a higher brand search share or total share of brand searches compared to your competitors. And you see the same thing where all companies with strong product market fit, they typically also have a growing share of, uh, of brand searches. Right. Interesting. So it seems, well, one... I- I want to shift a little bit because I feel like, you know, you're a growth advisor at a bunch of companies and it seems like they're mostly SaaS software, B2B. I'm curious, what are the main, what are the patterns of the challenges that you often come in that companies have or the questions that they have or things that they want you to solve or give input in? Like, where's the current, you know, market at, I guess, in terms of what they're, what they're dealing with, struggling with? It's a great question. There's probably two to three key problems that most companies have in that segment. Um, 
number one is they have a harder time attributing um, pipeline or new customers to very specific actions in SEO, right? So I typically work with venture-backed companies. So they have venture capital or they have their, their private equity backed. And they want to deeply understand the, the, the relation between things they do and the outcomes that they see. And what I've noticed, especially in enterprise segment, is that you have a buyer cycle or sales cycle that takes longer than 90 days. And most companies don't have the instrumentation set up to measure all the touch points that these customers have with different channels beyond 90 days. It's, it's, the reason it's really stupid is because Google Analytics has looked back window of 90 days and you need some other more dedicated instrumentation you know, to, to, to figure that out. It's very worth the investment, but most companies don't make it. And that's why they often over-attribute conversions and especially pipeline to paid channels and underestimate to organic channels. Part of that is also because the data that we get from uh, web analytics tools has become so much worse, right? There's so much more dark traffic. Um, there's so many dark more. Social. Yeah, social, exactly. Um, message, messengers, um, people who, for example, use SEO. They find a site uh, through SEO for the first time, and then they come back a couple of weeks or months later, and they go to the homepage and then sign up for the product. And that's typically attributed to direct traffic instead of SEO. So there are all sorts of traps and problems that come with just measuring the impact of SEO, which then leads to companies assuming SEO is not important. A couple of workarounds. One that is very simple, um, not super exact, um, is uh, post sign-up surveys. So when you have a customer who either signs up for a free trial or a sales call or for the product right away, just either send them an email or ask them right in the product experience, how did you find us? How did you first hear about us? And then you get a better um, idea of what, at least what channel it is. Sometimes you can, you know, uh, give people campaigns that they can select, but most of the time you go on the channel level. So then at least you can match, hey, on the channel level, do we see the same numbers in our attribution models compared to the post sign up surveys if not is can we figure out what the disconnect here is that is one one very so basic self-reported way to attribution those. exactly self-reported attribution cool yeah. so that's the one big bucket of challenges you, you mentioned there's one or two other ones yeah the second one and this is going to get really interesting with ai is developing a competitive advantage so if you're following the same playbook as your competitors, you will only ever get as good as they are, right? You'll always chase. So the challenge is to first understand what are my levers? And I, I, I spoke a little bit to that earlier when I explained the difference between aggregators and integrators. So what are my levers and how can we develop a competitive advantage? It's another point where product market fit is so important because Typically, you will figure out or have at least a hypothesis for advantage based on product market fit. It's typically a feature or a customer segment your target or a geolocation that then gives you hints of, okay, how can we translate that to marketing? And so in SEO, right, there, there are different levers you can pull and the different ways you can get a competitive advantage. I'm going to give you an example. Um, you can write about software reviews. You can write a blog article about them. Or you can compete with a category page where you, right, like do G2 where you have different, um, you have some content on there and then you have different software solutions and some, some ways for people to understand which one is better and which one is worth, uh, worse. These are two different formats. 
and not everybody can have uh, both. Or better said, if you don't have reviews on your site, if you're not a review aggregator like G2, you can only write blog articles, right? And so th that's one basic um, way to think or example to think about competitive advantage. G2 has a competitive advantage because they have data that, for example, publishers or affiliates do not have, right? right. And so that there are lots of different avenues of competitive advantage. And in my opinion, that is one of the most disregarded aspects of SEO because everybody is so passionate about the tactics, but not thinking strategically about, okay, how do we compete for these searches? What are some things that we can do here? Um, so that's the second uh, problem is connecting levers. Does this come levers. down to basically proprietary data? Like, I mean, the, the G2 owns that data of the reviews, right? And so they have that data and maybe you have other data. Maybe you have customer data, benchmarks, something that you could leverage to. Is, is that kind of the right way to think about it or... That is one bucket, absolutely. Proprietary data, huge bucket of competitive advantage. Uh, by the way, not just in, in SEO and growth, but in product and business in general. The other bucket is more resources, right? Uh, and again, AI is currently disrupting that at scale, but at least until very recently, if you had more SEOs on staff, more writers on staff, more designers or whatever, you can out-compete or out-execute your competitors. And another bucket of um, competitive advantage is engineering. So again, um, people looking for keywords, content is not always the best answer. Sometimes it can be a tool. So uh, let me give you a concrete example. At Ramp, uh, one one big win that we drove home is we we built a very simple tool um, for for mission statements. So a lot of founders or entrepreneurs uh, they want to craft a mission statement, and um, you know most of the uh, available content for that keyword when you search on Google was was articles about how to do that. But um, we and a couple of others, so so we developed this this very basic tool based on ChatGPT3 back when when it wasn't you know when it just came out um, that will just create different mission segments for you based on some parameters like what industry you're in, what your company does, what the product is, etc. And so that's another way to get a competitive advantage is by building tools that allow people to get a better answer to a search they perform on Google compared to content. I'm curious on this specific example, how does that tie in with Ramp's product? Because it's a finance product. If I'm looking to write my company mission, what's the hypothesis on how that drives relevant traffic for Ramp? I love that question. And we were surprised by how much pipeline it actually drives. The connection to the product is that you, as a you know, as an entrepreneur, you uh, often are looking for a product like like Ramp um, at the same time when you start your company, right? So you're oftentimes when people start thinking about mission statements, they also think about you know uh, corporate credit cards or uh, managing corporate spend spend management in general. So that is one of these un intuitive oh you mean they're correlated like the type of person that would need to define the mission statement is also the type of person who is managing and needs to think about the financial infrastructure of the company or how to correct it can be either the same person or it can be the same time where they think about the mission statement and the financial uh, spend management ah. at the same time and you know yeah yeah so we we didn't uh we didn't that, that's like one of these things where like how does that even make sense but uh, it, it drives a surprising amount of pipeline. Interesting. And then the third main challenge, was was there a third one? 
Yeah, uh, so third main challenge is just competition. Uh, SEO has gotten incredibly competitive, not just from a company-to-company standpoint, but also from a company-to-Google standpoint. So Google is or has invested heavily over the last couple of years in keeping people in the search results until they have a stronger buying intent and then sending that traffic out because that's also where Google shows the most ads and where Google makes the most money. So every search follows a a journey, if you will. Some of these journeys are very short. So if you search for, you know, the the latest college football standings, that's a search where you find an immediate answer probably directly on Google without even going to a website. And if you go to a website, you won't spend a lot of time because you just want to see the ranks. Another search like CRM software has a much, much longer journey because you probably either want to understand what CRM software is, does, if you need it, what the best offers are. Then once you have a narrow set, you, you do some like, uh, you know, comparisons and all that kind of stuff. So it's a really long journey. And Google wants to shorten these long journeys by giving searchers as much information in the search results as early as possible so that they get to that, that point faster where they're purchase ready. Mm-hmm. And then they show a lot of ads and send people to, to websites. So that means that companies have, they get less traffic for these search keywords that are very early on in the journey. But that also means they get a lot less data about how that search journey unfolds. And they have fewer opportunities to capture people early and have them continue that search journey on their own website, right? So there is a certain competition from Google as well um, that only intensifies because Google needs to make more revenue and, and search ads are still the, 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 the strongest horse in their stalls. Right, interesting. I, because you probably have a good perspective on that, how like zooming out broad perspective, how is AI and all this boom and all these tools changing SEO? It's a massive change. It's a massive, I'm not going to say the word un- unprecedented, but a massive, <laughs> historic. <laughs> never, yeah, historic, love that. Uh, thanks, Finn. I'm going to steal that from you. Uh, it's a historic change because let's, let's look a little bit at the broader dynamics of how Google works, right? Basically, a whole bunch of companies and people compete for search keywords and for traffic on Google. The way they compete is by creating content, building a good experience, you know, building good products. And, and, and the, the barriers to creating the content is basically, you know, paying people to write content or hiring in-house writers, designers, etc. So there is friction from, from just the resourcing perspective. AI makes a lot of that redundant because AI can create a lot of content at an, an improving quality. It's not perfect. Yeah, it depends a bit on the query. I'm not saying AI can replace writers today. But for a growing number of search keywords, AI can create content that is probably on par with what humans can create. And so that whole value goes away. And and that means that anybody who uses AI can compete for these keywords. Um, There actually recently was a a tweet that went viral from um, a... Um, you know, uh, from from a person who wrote about how they how they stole traffic from a competitor simply by recreating their content with AI. Now, mm. look, that it's not a sustainable thing. Uh, the quality wasn't 
wasn't outrageous, right? Like it's, it's not it's not a business strategy that, that you want to bet the farm on. But the reality is, and that's why this tweet went viral, uh, viral with almost tw- ten million impressions just on Twitter alone. Um, it the, the reason it went viral is because the reality is you can do that now. You can create a lot of content in a short amount of time um, that is relatively decent. And so again. All this whole competitive advantage goes away, where you can just hire more writers, or where you know you could you could just outcompete uh, your competitors. Not in every instance, but in, in a growing number of cases. And so Google faces that same issue, where for the longest time they were able to to surface the best content because only big companies or really or, or experts could create the best content. Now with AI, everybody can create really good content, right? So. There's a it brings a huge distraction and distortion to the ecosystem of Google, and that means companies need to focus on things you cannot do with AI. Again, experts surfacing mm. human content, human expertise, human experience, and again, there's like tools that that, that you cannot build with AI. Um, that those are a couple of instances that that companies can still invest in without having to fear somebody using AI to steal their traffic. Do you think? Is it correct to assume that you, even more than before, you will need to have a real deep domain expert have to write your content? Because, I mean, I don't know how many SEO agencies there are who all have a glossary that explains <laughs> what SEO means, what PPC means. And it seems like the, a lot of this commoditized SEO was basically about find me five articles from five other competitors who talk about this topic, read them all and kind of create a Frankenstein version of that for ourselves. And obviously that's now completely automated basically with ChatGPT. So do we need like not SEO specialists writing these blog posts anymore, but we need the CFO to write the ramp blog? I don't know. Is, is that what's going to happen or? It's a perfect example because that type of commodity content, that generic bland undifferentiated content that's exactly the stuff that's not valuable anymore right that 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 that's like you know that's uh, one minus one equals zero um you are correct that human expertise is one way to differentiate yourself there will be some point in the future i don't know how far away that point is but there will be some point where ai can probably replicate that level of expertise however until then um, the difference between an actual expert in a topic writing about that topic and an amateur who just summarizes the top Google results is huge. And Google can understand that difference very well mm. by the terms that experts pick, the way they approach the problem, the way they structure the content. It is very understandable for, for Google. Um, so yes, you want to see how, how you can sprinkle more expertise into your content. And sometimes it's fine to create the base of that of, the, of an article with AI just to save some time, but then have an AI, have an expert take it to the next level, right? So there's still ways that we can use technology mm-hmm. to cut the, the production time down, but uh, we where we need an expert to make it outstandingly good. There are other ways that you can also get a, a competitive advantage in your content. Again, proprietary data, unique data. Um, or just going the extra mile with data, investing a lot of time running surveys, analyzing data that's public and all that kind of stuff. Those are ways you can differentiate content. Sometimes it can even be a superior user experience. So for example, by creating charts or graphics, uh, maybe interactives that make it super easy to engage with that content and understand what's happening. 
right? And and this is not necessarily new. Um, you know, for the longest time, if you're able to express something in a simple line chart, say with two lines, right? That that's that's a way to grasp information much easier easier than reading through lots of paragraphs of content. And these are these are all things that companies need to start thinking about and investing in to differentiate their content. As we're on this topic, any favorite AI tools you're currently using? You can pick as few or as many as you want and maybe a sentence or two on how you're using it in your in your work. One of my favorites is the chat GPT integration into Google Sheets and Google Docs. It's a mm. free um, extension uh, that allows you to plug in your um, OpenAI API key and then use your your uh, API to the OpenAI uh, API uh, to then leverage um, ChatGPT in Google Sheets or Google Docs. Huge game changer in my perspective, especially since they uh, they um, uh, enabled ChatGPT four in that API. So that makes it very fun to to create content at scale, programmatic content, or even just use it for data analysis. Right. Uh, mm. So just this week, there's a um, a, a um, client cooperates in Brazil and uh, we are expanding their their SEO strategy and I wanted to to sort through a couple thousand of keywords first of all that are in Portuguese which I don't understand second of all I I kind of plugged many data sources to get that list of keywords together and there was a lot of noise in these keywords different spelling whether actually the same thing or, or weird spacing and so you can just use ChatGPT and Sheets to streamline that within minutes with for maybe a few dollars or maybe a few cents. So that's a huge game changer. Um, and then there is another tool that I love to use, which is called Humata AI. What it does is it allows you to upload PDFs and then search through these PDFs. And there are many cool use cases. Uh, one of them is you can record conversations with your customers and then export the transcripts into PDFs and upload them to Humata AI and then ask questions across all of these conversations. Like, are there common problems that all customers face? Are there things they love about the product? Are there topics that are top of mind? And so that's a way to, to suddenly being able to, to, to get really good information out of lots of qualitative data or qualitative research um, and leveraging that with AI. So these are just Are they good with controlling uh, hallucinations? Like I did this before with ChatGPT where I would upload just a transcript of a sales call and I would ask like, hey, like what were the most common questions or something? And it just hallucinated. And it, yeah. it maybe got the gist of it, and it, but it rephrased it. And when I want to address a question, I want to get the exact word by word question. I don't want to get some generalized version of it. Yep, yep, huge problem. Um, and in Humata AI, they solved that by giving you the references to the passages that they took the answer uh, from. Yep. So it's all verbatim, so you and can you can just click on a number, like a little reference point, and boom, it jumps to where they took that from. Uh, so the the reliability and quality is incredibly high. That's why I don't use uh, ChatGPT for that. No, that makes sense. Yeah, we use um, ChatGPT um, in the for for the the spreadsheet to categorize self reported attribution. Because when it's a free text field, you get all kinds of like different versions of what people say and you still want to be able to bucket it. And it's actually quite accurate if you just give it like, hey, look at this query and put it into one of these seven categories, LinkedIn, Instagram, Google. It it basically figures out from that query which category it falls into. And so you don't need to build all these. If this, 
if it's LinkedIn or LinkedIn or it contains some version of LI, then categorize it as LinkedIn. So it just makes it a lot quicker. Um, Smart. So when people hear SEO, they think about Google search, but that's not the only place where people search, right? They search on Google, they search on YouTube, which is fine. That's still part of Google. But then they also search on LinkedIn, they search on Spotify, they search on TikTok. And I mean, just to share one anecdote, my little sister was here in Berlin and she's 18 years old. And she started going to all these places, like a gallery and like a subway station. And I was like, how did you find these places? I've never heard of them. And she was like, TikTok. Yeah. Before I went here, I went on TikTok. I put in place things to do in Berlin and it gave me a bunch of TikToks and they had the videos of the actual places and I just picked the ones that I liked and that's the ones that I'm going to. She never once went on Google, right? Yeah. So I'm just curious how you think about that. You know, it's funny. Actually, Google is trying to build that into the search engine as well. Um, they have this new feature called Perspectives, where especially in travel queries, they try to just show more of that kind of stuff. So that is a challenge for Google. And the point is that Google is a text-heavy search, and that's fine for certain use cases. But there are all sorts of vertical searches that that Google is struggling to compete in. One example is e-commerce where Amazon has taken a huge market share. Um, and so people know that when they want products, they're more likely to find what they want in Amazon. Um, and then same with location searches, more people search on um, Instagram, Google maps, which again, is still part of Google, but different from the, from the standard text search. And then of course, TikTok. And the reason is one, you want to see pictures or videos of the location you're going to. And two, Part of the reason is also that there's so much more attention on TikTok right now, and there's so many more people on TikTok right now. Look, I don't want to zoom out way too much, but one thing that you have to understand to make sense of this is that there used to be, like I came up in a time when so many people were creating content on the open web, right? So many people were having their own blogs or writing on other blogs and, and publishers were doing much better. And that's not the reality anymore. The reality is that a lot of people have moved from the open web to the closed web, and one of the most successful apps in the closed web is TikTok. And so there's a lot of attention, a lot of creation there. And the re reason that people search on TikTok is because they can see videos from other people of that actual location they want to go to or tips, right? They can they don't know what they're looking for. They just know the city. So they get, they get new tips and, and kind of insider scoops of where to go. That is one very particular part of, of uh, search. The, the thing is also that anecdotally, I, uh, you know, I, I learned that, TikTok in general is being used for, for broader searches, not just location-based, but, but more stuff in general. But reality is also that short-form video is only good for certain types of searches and not for everything, right? So if you want to do some deep research, you're probably not going to start on TikTok. But if for whatever reason you have a visual need or you're, you know, a snack, snackable video is a good answer, then TikTok might actually not be that bad of a, of a place to start. Are the mechanics of these other places, whether you want to rank on uh, Spotify or TikTok very similar? Can you just apply the frameworks and things that you learned in Google SEO and apply them to these platforms? Or do you have to rethink how you approach this? You know, it's so funny you asked that because our understanding of Google has just recently changed completely. So Google is actually now on trial against the DOJ in a, in a large antitrust case that started in 2020. And lately, a lot of internal documents have been publicized in that trial. And a lot of these documents actually say 
that Google used engagement signals from users for way longer than we thought it did. Our, our old school model of the search engine was, you know, backlinks, so references from other websites are incredibly important. Content is very important. And then maybe user signals play a little role here and there. Turns out that model is actually upside down where Google has always, has never understood documents well until very recently, but used user engagement signals to make sense of documents. That is a complete kind of, you know, table flip of our mental model of what, how SEO is actually uh, used to work. However, that's very in line with how all the other user platforms work. YouTube, TikTok, um, Instagram are the most um, successful and important user platforms today, and they all look at user engagement. So when we talk about actual search, um, it's a little different than the core features of these apps because the, the core feature is basically discovery. Yep. You just, Especially in TikTok, you just open the app and immediately you see a video, and based on how you react to that, the algorithm will steer in a certain direction. Search is intent-based, and what that means is people express an intention by the keyword they search for. Now, when we bring that concept over to platforms like TikTok, people start with an intent, but the results are ranked based on engagement, right? So when you search for, you know, I don't know, Berlin tourist attractions or whatever, mm-hmm. TikTok is able to understand what videos are relevant for that, but the ranking of those videos depends on what people most engage with. But I would still need to put Berlin tourist attraction in my caption of my TikTok or something like that, or in the hashtags, or that's mentioned good, in the video. Question. There, there are different indicators of that. So yes, if you have a hashtag uh, or a caption, that certainly helps TikTok to assign that video to that search query. But TikTok might also understand whether that video is relevant or not simply based on the content. So by the transcription and what you say and what yep. you show, right? TikTok is incredibly, the algorithm is actually scary good. Um, but then also how people interact with it. And this is actually something that Google does as well. And again, we just recently learned that. But TikTok and Google, they have so many users and so much engagement that they are able to under, to, to group users by their behavior. So if I look at a lot of travel videos, TikTok knows, okay, Kevin is interested in travel right now. And if I look at a lot of videos around Berlin, Google, uh, sorry, TikTok can connect the dots and say, oh, Kevin probably wants more Berlin travel videos. Now, if I watch a video that doesn't have Berlin in the captions and in the hashtags, but I, I, I spend a lot of time there and you multiply that across millions and billions of users, you see a really strong pattern. And so Google, TikTok can make sense of that video without that video explicitly stating that it's about tourist attractions in Berlin. And that's actually the same thing that Google has been doing for a really long time where they realized, okay, we have hundreds of billions of searches uh, you know, uh, on our platform. If people search for Berlin tourist attractions and they all click on that one result right. and then they don't keep searching, that must mean that that yep. result is most relevant to that, to that uh, query without even needing to understand that document. Yeah. So I'm curious, this is maybe a little bit of a meta question. Given all of this, meaning... Um, Google SEO is people start searching in other places now. It doesn't have this pure dominance that it's the only place where people search for things. Um, it's becoming a lot more competitive with AI generated content. Um, and a lot of the, the, the newer algorithm algorithms like TikTok, it's a lot more relevance 
and and kind of engagement recommendation based rather than they're waiting for you to search something to service you service something is seo still a good career to go into and i'm even asking because i'm wondering because it looks like you're broadening yourself from your seo to broader growth and i wonder if that's related too um so i'm just curious what your career advice would be i guess for either aspiring seo uh, people or people who, you know, maybe just recently got into it and are wondering what do all these changes mean for me and my job and my career? It's certainly scary. It's scary because it's a big unknown and, and deep inside, even though people might not admit it, they all are scared of becoming redundant, you know, because Google goes away or, or because search goes away. I don't think that's going to be the case. I do think that search is transforming heavily and Google needs to react to that, uh, you know, um, to, to AI and uh, chatbots. But um, I think the basics of SEO and the basic thinking of SEO, that will remain for a long time. So it's still a good career to get into, um, but you want to, you know, want to learn the basics very quickly. And then a huge advantage that new entrants to that field have is they are not attached to the old ways of doing work. They can't, you know, they're coming with an open mind and uh, they're much more likely to experiment with AI, um, being open to, to using AI and learning how to leverage AI for SEO. And a lot of people who have been in the field for a long time, they have much more you know, friction and less momentum to deal with that because they've been successful with their old tactics for such a long time. So, and by the way, I think that's not just exclusive to SEO. I think a lot of careers, a lot of fields right now are dealing with the same thing. There's a tectonic shift. There's a new technology that opens all sorts of doors. And you typically find the younger people that are less attached to the old ways of working who are most successful in exploring, you know, leveraging that new technology. So actually, you might even have an advantage coming into SEO right now. Yeah, interesting. All right, let's get to some audience stuff. So first, uh, Vincent said, too bad I have to leave. Something came up, but stoked for the replay. Love that you guys are putting this on. Jeff Georgie asked, as I'm providing short-form video top-of-funnel conversion solutions to mainly B2B SaaS, um, I suggest some video topics around popular search terms to, to his clients, I guess. These videos are then published to LinkedIn and YouTube, YouTube Shorts, which helps complement their existing SEO strategy. What are your thoughts? So I guess he's curious whether you think this makes sense or is a good strategy. It is a good strategy. Um, Google search and YouTube search are deeply intertwined, not just because they both belong to the parent company Alphabet, but also because Google has owned YouTube for a long time and they're both, they both at least start with a search, right? So they, they're kind of brothers and sisters, if you will. Um, and so even YouTube has lately shown keywords that people search for in the analytics. So if you look at your analytics settings, uh, you can, you can, uh, uh, now get keyword recommendations for, for topics that you can enter. And if you have a large enough audience, then YouTube will actually tell you what other terms your audience is searching for. So there's still that keyword first approach and going after similar keywords on Google search and YouTube makes perfect sense because you know more people actually uh, over time are searching on YouTube because video often is a better answer than, than just text or a website. Um, and then the other thing that's really important to keep in mind is engagement. Uh, we just spoke about that, but it's you know different than on Google 
you know, where things like backlinks still matter a lot uh, and the content you actually have in there. On a platform like YouTube, you need to keep people's attention. You need to have them engaged over time. And so it's a combination of engagement and having the right video for the right topic that gets you successful on YouTube. And that's slightly different on Google. Right. And my impression is, and, and I'm curious to hear your reaction, that people are focusing too much on like this whole search engine engine optimization. Like, I think Mr. B spends zero amount of time looking at, well, probably at this point they do, right? At like what keywords they could be making videos about. All they care about is like, how can I create the best, most interesting, most engaging piece of content and then hope and rely on the algorithm to service it to the right people rather than looking like looking at hundred million versus $1 million house seems to get search volume. So therefore let's make a YouTube video about it. You're absolutely right. Engagement trumps relevance on YouTube, right? It's different, slightly different on, on Google. It was very different in the past on Google where, you know, backlinks were most important and then the content uh, and backlinks are somewhat comparable to, to engagement on YouTube. But yeah, the engagement is the number one thing. So how like how many people watch your video all the way to the end? And then there are other slower or, or um, uh, not slower, but uh, um, uh, less impactful engagement signals like the comments, the shares, the likes and all that kind of stuff. But yes, engagement is the number one thing. And one channel that actually is doing a really cool SEO strategy is Joe Rogan. So hmm. what Joe Rogan does, I mean, he has these long two, three hour interviews. Clips. Clips, exactly. He uses clips of these interviews to target specific keywords and specific topics that are sometimes hot, right? So he'll talk to a researcher and then clip out a little section where they talk about, I don't know, polarization or Trump or whatever. And then right. they do that very intentionally because they know that that's kind of the, the, the thing du jour. So clips are a great way, especially when you have long-form content, to target search queries or or keywords and hot topics, right? But it's a, it's it's more like they don't they don't he doesn't create a podcast thinking about what keywords can I go to. It's more like he basically pulls out more keywords, right? Because in a sense, if you have one three hour podcast, you can only give it one headline, which only has two hundred characters. But there's so many subtopics, so you can pull out twenty different ten minute videos, give it all a separate headline. And now you just, you have more keywords, I guess, that people can like find you on for different parts of the, yeah. That is exactly right. And it's a, it's an elegant, different angle to come to search, right? The, the classic way that we come to search is on a keyword basis first, but there's another way that only few companies and people leverage that can work equally, maybe better than that, which is to first create content based on Another principle, for example, what's interesting or what fits to your company narrative, and then look at what are some tidbits within that long-form content or within that content in general that we can repurpose or cut out for search specifically, right? So that's the kind of, that's a Joe Rogan approach. And again, you can do the same thing on Google, where if you create a long-form piece of content first, say about the number one problem your company goes out to solve, and then you look in Google Search Console, what keywords Google tries to rank that content for, and then you take a piece of that and, and, mm. and optimize it for that keyword. That's another way to approach search. And I would argue that the benefit of that is that you are probably the only company doing that. You're not trying to go after the same keywords everybody else is going for. And right. the reality is that 15% of searches every day on Google are, are completely new. They've never been seen before, right? So 
you have this, this, this majority of companies and websites that focus on already existing and competitive topics, but nobody goes after the completely new stuff where only in retrospect, we understand that it's actually something people search for. Interesting. All right, another question by Mark here. He asks, based on the different ways people search online, aside from Google, does that mean we should prioritize in targeting specific channel by first fully understanding the audience we're trying to target? Always, absolutely. That's why in the beginning I said product market fit is so critical because you start to understand, I mean, you should maybe even know that before product market fit, right? But you have evidence that the people you're going after to, uh, you're going after are the right people. And so, yes, you always want to understand your audience first, where they are, what they care about, problems, challenges, motivations, um, and then build your SEO strategy on top of that. All right. Gian Piero asks, really appreciate the video. Great stuff from both of you. You mentioned reviews, listicles. That has been a bread, the bread and butter for B2B SaaS companies. Could you expand on this and mention how you would approach this listicles, X, X versus y, y versus having standalone pages where you review competitors? It's a great question. Um, so it, it first depends on whether, again, like wh how you approach that keyword. Do you have aggregated product reviews or, or software reviews or are you writing content? Um, and one way to, to kind of figure out what's possible is to just Google some of these keywords and see who's ranking at the top, who's actually competing at the top and, and, and how do they compete? So at G2, we had three different or two different types of competitors, actually three. Um, one were other review sites like Captera, Gartner, right? Like that whole uh, conglomerate. Um, the second one were actually publishers. So, um, uh, you know, uh, um, like uh, PC Mac, uh, CNET, uh, um, all these kind of bigger publishers who also write about software. And then third were the software vendors themselves, right? The sales forces, HubSpots uh, of the world. And so the way that Google constructs search results is that they serve, they, sorry, they save a specific number of spots for different types of sites. So there were, for example, in the top 10 Spots, there were maybe, you know, three or four for review sites, maybe two for publishers, and then maybe two to three for the actual vendors themselves. And so they you were wanna... reserved, you said? Yes, exactly. So Google has an understanding of what the best mix of results looks mm. like based on the types of sites. And so that can change over time, right? They can they can add more spots or take some away uh, for specific types of sites, but they have an, they have a good they have a clear expectation of what type of site can even compete for that keyword. And so you want to Google some of these keywords, get a feeling for what types of sites compete, and then figure out how, like what the best format is for you to enter the race. Is it a blog article, right? Is it a, a, a category page or maybe something else? Um, and then what is your competitive advantage? What information, content, user experience, or tools can you offer to, to be to have a better offering than anybody else who's in the search results. And that's not always easy, right? There are some keywords, especially in the software reviews world where like, you know, they're, they're big billion dollar companies going after them and they, they put a lot of money and thought into how to compete. So there are verticals that are just harder to succeed in simply because you have bigger competitors, but that's the basic approach of how to figure out how to rank for these keywords and then put something together that nobody else can compete with. And it's also always good to first search if you're going to do like a you versus competitor comparison that people actually search for your competitor when they research you. 
because I saw Sam Kudler made this post on LinkedIn where oftentimes prospects don't think of you and your competitors the same way that you do. And by you creating a page for you versus competitor, you make them aware of your competitor. You can make them aware. Yes. And sometimes vice versa as well, right? Like if people are evaluating your competitor, they, they might become aware of you. So it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a two sided. Oh, yeah. That's how you, that's how you mentioned how they found out because they got a bunch of self reported attribution data where it's basically their competitor sending them to them because they had some comparison and they were like, we didn't know you guys existed until we researched this competitor. And so we looked into you guys and here we are, you know? Yep. Yep. Super impactful. Also very well, like usually very well converting landing pages. And uh, some people cut it very short. Some people just compare themselves against their direct competitors. But there are also other alternatives that a lot of customers use. Often spreadsheets, right? And yep. it's like the, the number one competitor to most companies is yep. spreadsheet. And so you want to compare your product to spreadsheets as well. Um, then there might be some other software solutions that are not direct competitors that people use. And then sometimes people compare more than two options, right? Sometimes they will compare your product against competitor one, against competitor two. So you might also want to optimize for those type of, uh, of keywords. But yeah, that's a very under-leveraged uh, uh, you know, play that, that more companies should follow. Right. All right, Vincent said, may have been answered, but Kevin, how do you feel perspectives and the overlap between social, social and search evolving? So perspectives is an interesting puzzle piece of a larger puzzle. And it is, the, the driver here is AI. Um, Google has to figure out how to make sense of search in this AI world. Again, I mentioned earlier that AI allows companies and people to create content for more and more keywords that is competitive. And so um, one way that, and this is my assumption, I don't know this for sure, right? But one way that Google can still yield um, results that AI cannot replicate is by, by prioritizing content from humans. Perspectives is one way to do that. Um, right now, it is still very heavy on Reddit results and core results. And I have to add also that another puzzle piece of that is that Google prioritizes more Reddit search results in general. Matter of fact, in the last four to five months, we've seen maybe six months, we've seen a massive spike in, in, to, uh, in traffic from organic search to Reddit's website because Google intentionally shows them more prominently because they, Google understands that people want answers from actual Reddit users. So wherever possible, Google tries to have more input from humans where it's clear that it comes from humans, right? And so you have to understand that um, in perspectives, you see, again, Reddit, Quora, YouTube, these are all platforms that, that prioritize content or answers from people who are verified and who are clearly human, right? And so one weapon in the battle against AI content is just verification. And you see all of these big platforms doing that. It's also LinkedIn. It's also Meta. They all ask people to, to verify that they're humans. Uh, on LinkedIn, you do that by, you know, with, with clear, which you also see, see at the airport. So you, you hold up your passport and you have to, that's, that's the best proof of, of being human, right? And so Google tries to leverage that to, to show more results from humans and perspectives is, is one way to do that. So the, in terms of the overlap between social and, and search, um, I, I think it's, it's less social and search. And I think it's much more, how can Google solve that AI problem and still be relevant as a search engine? Right. It's kind of funny how people work that we should only care about the information, but we actually want to know that it came from a real person and that's important to us. It is 
so true, Finn, and we see that across the board. So uh, we see, for example, in surveys and, and polls and studies in specific verticals, whether it's travel advice, software advice, uh, SaaS purchase behavior, people lean more and more on other humans because they see, first of all, that you know not all the search results are best quality and companies capitalize on them. So that takes away credibility. Uh, and they're, you know, they're aware of fake news and all the other ways that you can fake information and get a, get, you know, like, a, 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 a advantage as a company by, by somewhat manipulating that. So they, they trust humans. I mean, they maybe trust is the wrong word, but they consult humans more and more when it comes to advice on anything. Uh, and so again, th that's something that companies have to adapt to. And uh, where the answer is, you know, to, to actually get more results and content from actual humans. Right. I mean, the old version of that is when you had a company blog post. It's not just published by company, but it's written by Kevin Indyk. And, you know, it's there's like a little profile picture on the on the logo. I think that's another reason why video is probably going to be powerful until deep fakes are going to take that away, because that's one way to verify that's a real person sharing that inside I heard G from also from Hypergrowth partners make this point on a podcast recently that he he believes cold calling will pick up again because it's another way compared to cold email where now you can just anyone can just create these scripts with chat GPT cold calling you can again verify that's an actual person reaching out to you um, so interesting all right uh, we're coming up here on the hour I'll see if there's any last questions um, do you have time for one last question? One last question. That yes, I've seen no here. problem. All right. Clark McKinnon asks, are you worried about a world where AI completely dilutes the value of search? Yes, absolutely. I think that's where it, it has to go. And the big problem for Google is that they need to cannibalize their business model to, to survive and come out on the other end. I'm not... I'm not sure Google will die. I don't think they will die, right? But but their cash cow is currently starving and they need to figure out how to feed that cash cow again. Um, for companies, the challenge is that there are only already few platforms and channels that they can grow on, right? You have, and also channels that are scalable, right? You have, you have paid or advertising in general. You have product-led growth. You have SEO and maybe sales, salespeople, sales team. Um, those are some of the, the, the most, you know, the, the biggest ways to, to grow a company. And so if one of those goes away, the question is, okay, is there a new channel opening up or not? So are we, are we trimming down the channels so we can grow? And then, of course, you know, as, as, a, as an SEO, you know, Finn, you, meant, you made that really good point on broadening. Part of that is surely that, you know, SEO is getting more competitive and, and this whole AI thing. Um, another part of that is also that the, the, the usual human experience is, is more kind of multi-channel or cross-channel. And I see that in my own behavior where, you know, I don't just use Google search. I also use ChatGPT. I also use YouTube. I also use Instagram. I also use some, all the like consulting with other people uh, before purchasing. Um, so it's it just part of that is just adapting to how people behave on the internet. But yeah, that, that whole space is being disrupted. And um, I, again, I think there will always be some form of search. But the question, of course, is, is that going to be the Google search bar? Is that going to be the Chrome search bar? Or is that maybe going to be ChatGPT or another LLM uh, where you have a much, much better experience? Right. Yeah. All right. Maybe a good way to wrap up here is uh, one comment by Vincent. 
He said, can recommend subscribing to Kevin's premium Substack, crisp thinking around the entire online ecosystem. So that's some, you got to clip that and put it on your website for a testimonial. <laughs> yes. um, no, Kevin, thank you so much for your time. We're, we're going to wrap up here and thank you guys for joining and asking questions here. We do this every Wednesday. Uh, next week we have uh, Patrick Trumpy, who is the chief sales officer at uh, Unique, uh, joining us. So, um, and this recording, if you only joined at some point or only late, um, it's going to be up on LinkedIn. So wherever you're watching it right now, it's the whole thing is going to be up there. And then also next week, it's going to go up on our YouTube and Spotify, so you can re-listen or or listen to this there. So, yeah, thank you, thank you, Kevin, and thank you guys for joining. Thanks, Finn. Thanks, everyone. Great job, Finn.